Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin this morning at verse 32. And as you're taking out your Bible, I'm going to open us up in prayer, if you don't mind. Heavenly Father, I am grateful for the opportunity to gather in here with our family, friends. Um, We are grateful for the gospel and the cross of Jesus, which enabled us to be adopted as sons for those who believe. So we, we celebrate and exalt you, Jesus, for that great price which you paid and exhausted on our behalf, our ransom price. I pray, Lord, as we walk through this text, that you would help me, help me be clear and um, walking in your spirit, that it might be spoken and uttered with great power um, to affect our hearts um, as you would see fit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our passage opens up a little bit like an old Willie Nelson song, which ought to scare you. No, that old Willie Nelson song, On the Road Again, right? In his song, Willie could not wait to get back on the road again. But in our text, apparently the only one that's excited, or not excited, that's the wrong word, but motivated, I should say, to be on the road was Jesus. Nonetheless, he led, and they followed, and he continues to lead today, right? Once he led as the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep, and today he leads as the chief shepherd, who when he appears again, he will provide a crown of unfailing glory to those who has served as he served and who have followed in the manner that he lived. Um, So that's our aim with our lives. Um, But my invitation for you this morning as we approach this text is, I don't let this text pass you by this morning. Um, Even now, as I'm encouraging you with that, let me also encourage you to ask the Lord, ask the Lord for help in blocking out any type of distractions that might appear or any distractions that might prevent you from hearing this text. Ask God to help you see and to savor Jesus afresh and anew this morning. And and in some cases, maybe for the first time. I don't know everyone in this room, but it could be that you're hearing this message, these things that we've sung about and that we're opening up our text to see about. And you're hearing things like ransom, redemption, blood cost, cross for the first time. And I encourage you, don't let this pass by. By God's grace, may we all see the God-man who came to serve and to give and to establish a new ethic of greatness, right? Um, And may we um, uh, heed him who also gave physical sight to the blind, which we just read about, and spiritual sight to the blind as well. So that's where we're headed. That's our aim. Join me in verse 32 of chapter 10. As we just begin this passage, we're headed up toward Jerusalem. Up toward Jerusalem. And that's what our passage begins with, those words. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. So hear that. Up to Jerusalem. Um, The fact that they were going up to Jerusalem speaks to the prominence of the city in the hearts of the people. Psalm chapter 48 verse 2 references this very thing when it says that Jerusalem is beautiful in elevation and it was the joy of all the earth. But 
But Jesus and his disciples are not headed up to Jerusalem because it's this popular city destination or the place that everyone's wanting to go to. They're going to Jerusalem for the express purpose because Jerusalem was going to be the location for Jesus to settle what he came on earth to settle and do. So he was going to Jerusalem to accomplish that for which he came. Now Isaiah 50 verse 7 points ahead to this time right here. And it speaks of that servant of Israel who set his face like a flint. And we don't have to let it just land there in Isaiah because Luke will also pick up that very, that very thought and he'll connect the dots with what Isaiah said of the servant of Israel with Jesus himself. In Luke 9, 51, it says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So knowing exactly what's in store for him once he gets to Jerusalem, this is what's incredible to me and humbling at, at the very least, if not the best. Jesus needed no prodding to be on his way. In fact, as the text reflects, Jesus led the way. He's, he's in the front of the line here. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. So get this. Jesus is leading his disciples. Jesus is leading the way to his own sacrificial death. Jesus was the lamb who led the way to his own slaughter. And he's now the shepherd who leads the way in every aspect of life. He's leading his sheep, us, the sheep of his pasture, He's leading his sheep through things like the valley of the shadow of death, momentary afflictions, all the way through to other things like divine appointments that he is setting up and has in store for us that he's arranging ahead of time for us to walk in. He led, he's leading. Second, first thing that I want us to see here as we jump in that the disciples followed him but they followed him with amazement and fear. Draw your attention, if you would, to verse 32, the, the second part of verse 32, where it says this, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Is it the first time the disciples are going to experience, well, have experienced these emotions? It certainly will not be the last time. You might remember, as we've talked through Mark, they were afraid in the boat just before Jesus stood up and calmed the sea, saying, peace, be still. They were afraid. They were afraid when they're struggling to paddle their boat. Jesus wasn't even in the boat, sent them ahead that time, and they can't get across for the, the, the turbulent waters. And then Jesus walks out onto the water, and he intended to pass them by. But he comes into the boat and calms things down, and they were terrified when Jesus did that, right? So this isn't the first time um, that they're experiencing these emotions. It won't be the last. But this time, these emotions are 100% linked to Jesus' steadfastness as he has set his eyes and set his face toward his destination. That destination is not just the city, Jerusalem, but that destination is a city wherein 
He will accomplish what he came here to accomplish. And we're going to look at that in just a few minutes. Look at verse 33. Because he doesn't leave it for them to wonder, what is that trip going to be like? What's going to happen when I get there? Jesus foretold with precise detail. Verses 33 and 34, check this out. And taking the 12 again. So he's, he's always had a, a, an occasion to do this, right? He's got a crowd, but when he wants to speak intimately and with more detail, he pulls the 12 aside, and this is one of those examples. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. And I'm going to just kind of interrupt my train of thought there to tell you this. This is the third and final time that Jesus is going to share what was going to happen to them. I'm sorry, not them, but him in Jerusalem. But in this final foretelling, you saw it in chapter 8, you saw it in chapter 9, now we have it in chapter 10, the final time. And in this final foretelling, Jesus shares with much more specific detail what he had already shared previously, but now he's laying in all the details. And what I want you to kind of grab from that, one of the things that we're to grab from that is the details denote his deity. Okay, so he's, he, he, he knows not only because he's the God-man, but because he's made thorough study of all of the scriptures and he's seen throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures that those details point to this time about what's going to happen. So notice what he talks about. Okay. The first thing that we see, and I'm kind of grouping a couple of these, is this. That the Son of Man, and I'm going to repeat Son of Man throughout this, just kind of get this in our head, which Mark uses. But the Son of Man will be delivered and condemned. The Son of Man will be delivered and condemned. Notice the passage. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. So get this. Jesus is going to be delivered to the priest, to the Gentiles, and to death. First off, let's check out the priest. I'm breaking these down for you so you'll see something uh, that I hope um, causes you to see the goodness of God as he has lavished it in grace upon us, the priest. I want you to see how God the Father will be active. I'm speaking in the future because Jesus is speaking of something about to be in the future. It's past for us, but that's my language here. God the Father will be actively involved in delivering over Jesus. The word delivered on this occasion, we see the word delivered twice in this sentence, but this first one is written in the passive voice because it's, it's concealing who it is that is delivering Jesus. We don't see a name attributed to that. We, we see no identification of that. It's known as a divine passive. So in other words, the subject is concealed and it's concealed on purpose. It's a way for Mark to reference God without using his name so as not to run the risk of defiling it. Okay? But just think about the ramifications of this. If, if it's God himself who's handing him over, delivering over his son, it, it undergirds the truth of a verse we know so well. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. Folks, and I'm reminding myself in this room, have no doubt this morning. See how great a love that it is with which God loves you, that he would give his only beloved son so that those who believe in him might be adopted as sons themselves. Isn't that good news? Well, he would be delivered over to the priest. and He'll be delivered over to death. Okay? Jesus will eventually stand trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, the scribes, and the other elders. And those people will make up a council that Jesus will stand before. And they'll build their case with some false testimonies from recruited witnesses until they all, in concert, come to the same conclusion, the conclusion that they actually started with, but they feel like they've got enough fuel for the fire whereby they can say it aloud that he deserves death. Think about the irony of this. I mean, how ironic is it that God, who was bringing about his plan of redemption, whereby the guilty would condemn the innocent, that through the lifeblood of the innocent, the repentant might receive forgiveness. The Jews had no authority to bring about and lay hands upon one to bring about their execution. So it was incumbent upon them, once they have condemned him, once God has delivered them over to him, he's con- they've condemned him to die, they then have to deliver him over to the Gentiles. Thus the Gentiles, right? In chapter 15 of this same book, when we get there, we'll spend some more time in detail with this, but we see what happens next. And for now, just this morning, to kind of put a, a bow on it and bring it all together, I just want to read chapter 15, verse 1 for you to tell you what happened next. And as soon as it was morning, so the council has met, they've declared that he deserves death. As soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now Jesus is telling them exactly what's going to happen to him. And he doesn't stop with the fact that the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests, the scribes, and they'll condemn him to death, and they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles. He goes on to say that the Son of Man will be flogged, and he'll be made sport of. So the Son of Man will be made sport of, and he'll be flogged. And here's what the language says. And I'm, I'm using the language, they'll make sport of him, in place of the word mock him, because that's, that's really the totality of what's going on there. If you think about it, here's the scripture. And they will mock him and they'll spit on him. And they'll flog him and kill him. How will the soldiers do this? The, soldier, the soldiers, forgive me, will, will mock him by dressing him up in purple. They'll squish a, a makeshift crown of thorns that they've woven into a crown deeply onto the crown of his head, the skull and crown of his head. And they'll... they'll, they'll They'll beat him while they're doing that. And they'll make proclamations, salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they're doing this not to worship him, but to make sport of him, to mock him. 
while he's dressed this way and, and uh, they're leveraging his, their accusations and mocking slurs against them, he will have already undergone a terrible treatment and torturous um, filleting would be a word that you could use here. To be flogged or to be scourged was a Roman practice that, that consisted of severe punishing beatings with a, with a multi-lashed whip that had at the end of those whips pieces of bone and pieces of metal and pieces of glass that were, that were intended to, to inflict the harshest of um, punishment. And those more often than not, those floggings, that physical type of torture would have preceded Roman executions. And, and maybe it was as much as an intimidation tool for bystanders and lookers on as it was for the one who was facing the death sentence and those who were watching. But it's no doubt what happened before Jesus' death. Catch this. Jesus came and Jesus was born to die. And he would die a willing, sacrificial death for the church. But thanks be to God. Because Jesus doesn't just leave his anticipatory, here's what's about to happen to the Son of Man with, I'm going to be delivered, I'm going to be mocked, I'm going to be flogged, I'm going to be killed. But he leaves them with good news. And thanks be to God, he did leave with good news. And thanks be to God, he followed up that good news with this statement being true. The Son of Man would rise three days later from his death. He would rise with the Son that he created. And he would also share in that same sunrise that would surface after what would have been one of the worst storms of darkness in history. After three days, he will rise again. Now, listen, none of us are professionals on how someone ought to receive news and the responses there to give in response to hearing certain things, but I would think that you hear those type things and it's actually going to produce in the disciples a sense of sobriety and, and humility. But... Like the two previous times that Jesus has shared with a foretelling of what's about to happen and what's going on, the disciples are still utterly focused on themselves regardless of what they've just heard. I mean, look with me at verse 35 where two of the disciples ask this. They ask Jesus, to, they, they want to be right beside Jesus in glory, right? Look at verse 34. 35, you got James and John here, the sons of Zebedee, and they come up to Jesus and they make this request. And it's a request for status and glory. Now get this. I don't have to tell you what I just told you, but I'll, for the risk of repeating myself, Jesus has just shared how his life is going to be spent as a sacrificial offering for them. And these two brothers seize the opportunity to to jockey for future status check out the self-serving question these disciples ask the chief servant they preface their question with a statement they said teacher we want you to do for us whatever it is we ask 
That's all. I can't think of a more loaded thing, right? Jesus replies to their statement with a question. It's a question you're going to hear again in a moment, but you've already heard it in our public reading of the scripture just earlier. Here's the question he asked. What do you want me to do for you? And they respond, Hey, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left hand, in glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm to be baptized? I don't know if we chalk it up to naivete or maybe just good hearts that want to think the best of what they're, they're suggesting themselves. But clearly, they do not know the full extent about what Jesus is talking about. So their response is, why? Why, yes, we are able. Which always strikes me as funny. But it wouldn't be nearly as funny had I not lived a lifetime of the same kind of statements coming out of my mouth, the things that I would hope to do for the Lord. Yes, we are able. Let's talk just a moment about the cup that Jesus is going to consume and the baptism with which he is going to be baptized, that which they said, yes, we are able. And Jesus said, you don't know what you're talking about. More often than not, in the Old Testament, a cup usually symbolized God's judgment and his wrath. And the cup that Jesus will eventually drink down to the dregs will be the cup of God's wrath over the sin of man. The baptism that Jesus would be baptized with, forgive me, would be the baptize, bap, it's easy for me to say, isn't it? It'd be the baptism of identifying with sinners and bearing their judgment from God. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5. I think of this verse all the time. That he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Notice what verse 39 says, which is Jesus' response to them. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. Well, that's strange. One moment we're hearing, you don't understand what you're asking. And now Jesus says, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now the other ten get wind of the conversation and you hear it. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. I think about this because it's not a contradiction what Jesus has said when he says you will drink of the cup, you will, drink the, you will experience the baptism. Think about what was going to happen in James and John's life down the road post Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Because of their association, their identification with Jesus, 
both James and John would suffer and die. James would suffer by martyrdom. John would suffer for years as a slave on the Isle of Patmos and then eventually in the death that we really don't know the exact details of John's death. But suffice it to say, their life is going to be marked with a cup in baptism from their identification with Jesus, um, that being martyrdom and death. But what I want you to hear and what Jesus is stressing here is that the cups that they would drink and the baptisms with which they would be baptized would be radically different than that of Jesus. The cup that Jesus was preparing to consume down to the dregs and the baptism with which Jesus was preparing to be baptized was unique to him. Jesus will humbly, catch this, Jesus will humbly drink the cup of judgment so that his bride would not have to. You and I, however, as his bride, those of you who have trusted Christ by faith and you're seeking to walk in him, united with him, tied to the cross, you and I, however, as his bride, followers of Christ, we will be called upon to drink cups of suffering, and I'm going to add a word here just for your memory device, of suffering and sanding. And I'm using that word sanding, not because it's in the text, but just so you'll kind of latch onto it and hear it, that you might embrace the grace involved in the Holy Spirit's use of refining and purifying fires that He brings about in our lives. These cups are to be received in our lives as good gifts from God that might bring about our transformation and our dependence upon Him and our sanctification by God's grace, right? And all of these things, our receptivity to this starts with a a sense and a posture of humility before the Lord. Our chief aim is to look more and more like Jesus who emptied himself, who took on the form of a bondservant, who was born in the likeness of sinful man, who humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to death, even death on the cross. Well, I've already told you, when the other ten get wind of this whole conversation that James and John, and frankly, you learn in one of the other Gospels that their mama was with them as well, so kind of prodding this whole conversation along. When the other disciples heard what was going on, they are indignant. I'm talking about upset. But Jesus seizes the opportunity. And he seizes the opportunity to teach another counter-cultural lesson on servanthood. Another counter cultural lesson on the ethic of the kingdom and he's going to use pagan leaders as a negative objective lesson and he's going to use himself as a positive example look at verse 42 we're going to look at verse 42 through 45 for this lesson on servanthood let me just read all of it to you and jesus called them to him and said to them you know that those who are considered rulers of the gentiles They lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now listen, Jesus states the obvious, right? And here's the obvious. Worldly leadership methods are about control, about lording positions over those that they supervise and and treating others like they're they're subjects uh, just waiting to do their bidding, right? That's, That's worldly leadership. That's the megalomaniac model of our day. But this is not to be the ethic of the citizen of the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus is not only preaching, but he's embodying. Greatness is measured in one's willingness to live for others. Greatness is measured in one's willingness to serve others at their own expense. Greatness is measured and is genuinely marked by a heart of humility as Christ would eventually and supremely exemplify. So look at verse 45, if you will, with me. For even the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking to his 12 again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve and he came to give. How did he serve? We served by being the, and hear this. If this is new to you, just grab this language. He served by being the sufficient price that would satisfy a debt that no human on earth could afford to pay. The word ransom, that's what he just said, right? For, the, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me just pick apart ransom, the word for, and the word many for you just for a second. The word ransom means the price of release. It refers to a given payment that would bring about the subsequent release of a captive or a slave, right? And I'm kind of painting with a broad brush here, but that's in general what it means. Now hear this. All of humanity was born into sin, born as sinners. They were not only born in sin, but they were born enslaved to the world, their flesh, and the devil without any chance of breaking free on their own merit. This is just the state of condition of the human life as we were born. This is what we see in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, when Paul writes, Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man, who was that man? Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's chapter 5 of Romans. Romans chapter 6 goes further and says this, For when you were slaves of sin, and then he's already shared the gospel in Romans, so he goes on to say this, You were free in regard to righteousness. The ransom price required for the redemption of mankind was not paid to the devil as if he's the banker through which this ransom price had to be paid, right? As if he was the one who was supremely in charge. 
So when you, when you hear this, listen, the Son of Man, he, he came to serve, not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. The payment price did not go to the devil. The ransom price was paid to God himself. David writes in Psalm chapter 51, verse 4, against you. You only have I sinned. God is the offended party over the sin of man. As a result, God is the one to whom the ransom is owed. The ransom payment was not merely transactional. In other words, it's not like Jesus came and brought out his wallet and said, what what, what do I owe for the sins of mankind? Here's the transaction." The ransom payment was not merely transactional, but it was, and this is most important, it was substitutionary. It was not just a transaction, but it required a substitution. And that gets us to the next preposition, the next word that I want you to see. A ransom for, let me chat just a second about this, because the preposition for reinforces the idea of substitution. It means... Instead of, or in the place of. So in other words, if you kind of insert that definition for the preposition for used right there. Jesus gave his life instead of, or in the place of, and then notice what he says. Many. The word many applies to all who by God's grace and through faith are born again in Jesus. Jesus gave his life in your place so that your life might be ransomed and lived for the glory of God. What a glorious mystery. Think about a song that we sing often in this room, um, in our homes and wherever you listen to music. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. Christ the Lord upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold. Bringing many sons to glory. Grace unmeasured. Love untold. Folks, hear this. There are no limits to the reach and the effect of the gospel. You cannot travel so far away from the Lord that he will not reach and call you to himself. And you cannot be from a background that is so um, divergent from the gospel and grace whereby he cannot woo you to himself and call you into relationship, there are no limits to the reach and effect of the gospel. And to prove that, Mark adds this last story. Let's look at it. We've already read it, so I'm just going to read snippets of it um, and allude to it. But here's this final thing. Number three, following after Jesus. So in verse 46 through 52, you've got this story of um, blind Bartimaeus, who was a beggar. One of the only places we see in, in the Gospel of Mark where we see another name given, like we've done um, Jairus. We've met Jairus earlier. It's a re, 
redundant way of introducing us to blind Bartimaeus. Bar meaning son of, Timaeus being the name of his father. So he's known as son of Timaeus. He's going to tell us his name. He's going to give us his father's name. He wants us to kind of reach in and embody uh, what's going on in this story. So notice the personification of servanthood. Jesus, though he has set his face like flint to head to Jerusalem, is going to stop and interact with someone that the crowd says is not worthy of his time. So we read the story of blind Bartimaeus. We read it earlier in the service. And on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus enters into a town called Jericho. He's got his disciples and he's got a great crowd in tow. And and Mark introduces us, like I've just said, to this guy. He's a blind beggar. More than likely, everyone in the city knows that where he's going to be and what he's going to do when you walk by. He's going to call for alms. He's going to call for some type of help. You just know he's always going to be there. He's always been there. But this time, something's different. Jesus, the disciples, and the crowd are coming out. He gets wind of who it is, and he cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And just remember what you've seen already in Mark. You've seen disciples and crowds rebuke others for bringing children to Jesus. And now you see the crowd rebuking blind Bartimaeus for thinking he's got a right to holler out to Jesus, right? This caused him to cry out all the more. And then it happened. The miraculous happened. Jesus stopped. He stopped just like he had done with a lady who had been bleeding for 12 years. And he's, he's stopping now in the midst of his important journey for where he's headed to interact with someone who needed the gospel, who needed mercy, who needed grace. But notice, he stands still in the crowd. And by standing still in this moment, you see the posture of Jesus because his standing still is going to allow a blind man to make his way to himself. And Jesus calls him. Jesus stopped and then Jesus called. And the people then called the blind man and said, listen, take heart. He's, he's calling you. And, and I love this picture because knowing he's never going to need that cloak again to give him shelter from where he sat most of his life, he chucks his cloak and he throws it down, throws it away from him, and he springs up and he heads to Jesus. And notice this request for sight that he gives. Jesus asked Bartimaeus a question. It's the same question he asked to James and John. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Mark writes in Mark chapter 10, verse 51, and the blind man said to him, Rabbi, if you're carrying the New American Standard, you're going to notice the word Rabboni. If you're carrying the King James Version, you're not going to see the word Rabbi. You're going to see the word Master. Both of, the, both of those things have a posture issue by how he approached Jesus. And it's different how, than how James and John had approached him. They come up to him and say, Teacher, we want you to do what we ask of you, right? But that's not what's going on here. James and John had asked Jesus for status. Bartimaeus is asking Jesus for sight. James and John came with this sense of entitlement to be seated. Bartimaeus came with the faith to follow. Jesus said to him, Bartimaeus, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Well, 
didn't go his way, he did. But when he went his way, he didn't go away. For his way now was the way of the master. The word Rabboni is an endearing term, but it's also one that, that communicates to Jesus that I'm going to follow you wherever you go. We see it here, and we see it from Mary at the, gray, at the tomb when, he, when she speaks to Jesus and opens up her content with Rabboni. Only other place. So this is a posture of humility as a receiver of the gospel, as a receiver of mercy. And notice what he does. He goes along on the way of the master. This passage began with Jesus anxious to get on the road again. And it concludes with one who's anxious to enter the road with Jesus and having been enabled, enabled to do so by grace and the miracle of ransom and redemption. A ransom that would take place, but that this guy's walking in the fruit of already. When we think of the way of the master, when we think of our response to so great a gospel, I want to leave you with just a couple of thoughts. First off, first thought is this. It's an, it's an imperative thing that I share and with a desire in my heart that you hear. And if you're in this room and you've never trusted Christ, you're still living in blindness and darkness, groping in the darkness with, with an enslavement to sin and death and your flesh. Can I tell you that there's no reach in your life that is too far for Jesus to reach you in? And it could be that in this moment, you're sensing him calling to you. Bring him to me. Bring her to me. Can I encourage you to shuck off of yourselves the cloak which you've been hiding under all this time up to this point and run to Jesus because you never need that anymore once you come to him for new life. New life is being offered for you because what was being spoken of to be in the future in Jesus' day when he's talking about this is now in hindsight. The work is finished. Your ransom price has been paid through the substitutionary humble death of Jesus the Christ. And he did it making it available to all and the many who will say, yes, I receive you as Lord. And yes, I want more for you, from you than just the fire insurance. I call you master and my life has been purchased with your blood and I'll follow where you lead me. That's the first thing. If you're in this room and you've never trusted Christ, please receive Jesus today. Second thing is much like um, Joe led us in the song that he, uh, he led right before or right after our prayer time and before I came up is this, that Jesus who led on the road to Jerusalem is still leading today. And I want to encourage you to recognize that as you tie yourself to the cross and as you look unto Jesus and as you humbly follow in his leadership, he will lead you. Fanny Crosby was a blind uh, lady who, active in missions, active in teaching, wrote thousands of hymns, thousands of songs, and had as a practice when a need arose in her life, she would stop and pray. And she would stay until it was answered. And she had a provisional need one time in her life, and she uttered that prayer to the Lord, and within no time, by God's grace, and miraculously, 
um, someone came and physically provided for her need in that moment. And as a result of that provision, his leadership, she penned the words of a song that no doubt you're familiar with, and it's with these words that I'll just kind of close, pray, and we will sing um, a response song together. But here's what she said. All the way my Savior leads me. Who have I to ask beside? How could I doubt his tender mercy? Who through life has been my guide? All the way my Savior leads me. He cheers each winding path I tread. He gives me grace for every trial and feeds me with the living bread. Do you know Christ this morning? If not, will you receive him as your Lord and Savior? And if you do, will you be reminded afresh and anew that the path that he is leading you on is, is one of trials and suffering. It's not an easy street road, but it's one that he has traveled and is traveling again, leading you on. You can trust him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the ransom price that our sin demanded was more great than we can fathom. Thank you for sending Jesus the price for our ransom. Thank you for receiving it as paid in full. Thank you that as a result of that payment and the subsequent faith that we have been graced with to place in him as our Savior you see not our filthy rags, but you see us in clothes and robes of righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. So Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We exalt you, Jesus. I continue to pray, Lord, that if there are folks who have heard this message of the gospel and ransom and redemption that do not know you as their Lord and Savior, may this be the day of their salvation. And Lord, for those who are your bride, Lord, remind them of your presence in leading them on the way, your way, in Jesus' name, amen.